There's a school in philosophy called the Absurdist School, patterned after the writings of a very gifted man named Albert Camus. And the Absurdist School believes that there's no rhyme or rhythm in life, there's no pointed reality in living, that everything is a cacophonic unfolding of chance. And Camus said that the exemplar of this type of living is Sisyphus. Sisyphus is the man who in Greek mythology pushed a rock to the top of the hill every day and then at the end of the day the rock would roll back down. He did that for eternity. Do you have a picture of Sisyphus? Am I getting this wrong or right? So anyway, he's a guy pushing a rock. Sisyphus. We'll wait. So Sisyphus. And, and then I read recently, there you go, and then I read recently about, about this situation, and really it's, it's, it's a true story, believe it or not. There was a motorist who was going to drive to Brussels from about 100 miles north of Brussels, and Rotterdam's 100 miles north of Brussels. And I'm sorry, but she plugged in her coordinates in her car, in her you know, GPS, and instead of driving really 97 miles, she ended up driving 840 miles. She got to Zagreb, Croatia. And this is why she said, when I arrived in Zagreb, I stopped and said, I don't think I'm in Belgium. <laughs> True story. Um, life is a journey, people say. But we believe life has an end in the journey. There is a road map for the journey called the Word of God. That life has purpose and, and man has has dignity. And, and there is a great God who in the fullness of time became man. His name is Jesus. In Luke chapter 1, Zechariah is celebrating the birth of John the Baptist. And he holds his son up, as it were, and he speaks this incredible and beautiful prophecy. And he says about his son, who is the forerunner of Christ, the contemporary of Christ. He says in Luke 1, 78, because of the tender mercies of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. This Christ, this man who will come in the wake of my son's preaching. He, he will give light to those who sit in darkness, and he will guide our feet into the way of peace. And then in Luke 4, when Christ has come and he's begun his ministry and he goes into the temple for the very first time, we think, as, as, as we see in the book of Luke, as far as an adult teacher, he, 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 he reads from the book of Isaiah. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which is a prophecy predicting the coming Messiah King. And Jesus wrote up the scroll, gave it back to the tenant, then he sat down and he said, the scripture is now fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. Wow. In other words, life has purpose and dignity because we serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords whose name is Jesus. We just celebrated his work on the cross, his historic, re real work on the cross for our sins. And so as we've 
been looking at this issue of, of living responsibly as stewards. We say we, we live as called out people. We live as called out people. And the key verses there is 1 Peter 2, verse 9 and 10. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That you may declare the praises. We are bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6 says, we are to honor God with our bodies, with our being. If you are a Christ follower, if you see him as God in the flesh, who died on the cross for your sins, who rose victorious over death, who's sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, praying for us now, who will one day judge history and us. We live with dignity as called out people. Not only are we made in the image of God, but we've tasted the glory of God in the person and work of Christ. We live as called out people. We live with dignity. We live with, with hope. We don't live with this type of absurdist, nothing to live for, nothing to die for, nowhere to go when you die. We say, there is something to live for. There is some place I will go when I die. And so life takes on incredible dimensions. And we operate from the basis of called out people, made in the image of God, who will one day stand before the living God. We don't operate from the basis of, of, of shame or guilt or pain, saying we, we don't measure up. We don't, we don't operate as the moral drifter. I read this in, from a, in a journal about the moral drifter, talking about the people who live in our age. And let me just read two short paragraphs. The moral drifter has no responsibilities, no hope, and no purpose. He is free from all commitments and tries not to concern himself with the perilous quest of life and death. He is a stranger. He is a tourist. He is an indifferent observer. He is the television watcher, the apathetic consumer. Wow, apathetic consumer. The drifter is homeless, nothing is stable or binding in his life, and so he always expects the arbitrary and the fleeting. Divorced from tradition, nature, and the old responsibility of upholding the family name, the drifter does what advertisers tell him or what his urges urge him. He has sex when it is convenient, but never falls in love. When it comes to politics, culture, morality, the drifter is tolerant by default. He does not judge others because he is unwilling, afraid, or unable to judge himself. His life boils down to the defensive statement, I'm not bothering anyone. Therefore, he focuses almost entirely on himself. The drifter, the consumer, the nothing to live for, nothing to die for person. We believe life has meaning. We believe we are responsible to live out our giftedness before the God who loves us. We are responsible in the use of our time, talents, and treasures. We don't operate from the basis of shame or guilt or not being able to measure up. We operate from the basis of, I'm made in the image of God. I'm called into fellowship with the living God through the work of Christ. Richard Nixon was president not too long ago when 
As you remember, he resigned from office in August of 1974 in the aftermath of the Watergate break-in and cover-up. And a few, the last few years have been some biographies written about Nixon, one by Stephen Ambrose, a short biography, and Ambrose says that, that, that Nixon's greatest issue was that no one knew him. He says not even his wife knew Richard Nixon. And Jonathan Atkin, who is an evangelical from Great Britain, has recently written a book on Nixon, and this is what he says. He says, Nixon was always conscious of his family poverty, grew up in California, and suspicious of East Coast elitist. Not Charleston, New York. Don't, don't start flattering yourself. Well, yeah, I can see, I can see why. Nixon struggled to form personal bonds with others. He never had friendships. His Achilles heel was his inability to trust. Because Nixon operated from the basis of shame and not measuring up. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we operate from the basis not of shame or not measuring up, even though there's much we should be shamed about and we don't measure up in many ways. We operate from the basis of who Christ is in us, the hope of glory. And because of that, we have incredible dignity and worth, and, and, and there's a reason to live with joy. So, stewards in life, we said, leaders called out people, they travel hopefully, they, they love in community as they taste the goodness of Christ. So, so how, how do you know you're glorifying God? Because 1 Peter 4 says that whether you, you, you speak, speak as were the oracles of God, whether you serve, do so by the strength that God supplies, so then in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So, so how do you know you're glorifying God today? I'm going to mention a couple of things. I was too aggressive, and next week I'll close it out and be done. But the first question I ask is this. Do I live with the end in view as I make much of the gospel of Christ. 1 Peter 4, 7 again says, you know, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded so that you can pray or, or worship or live correctly. So the question says, is, you know, do I live with the end in view as I make much of Christ? Now, understand this. If you, you have to read books of the Bible, and passages in context. In, in the first part of his epistle, Peter just hammers out the gospel of grace. He glories in the work of Christ. He says in chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ out of the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God's faith. So, so he, he lays the groundwork, he says, remember the gospel of grace. Later he says that, he says, the prophets when they prophesied in the Old Testament were serving you because you've received the fullness of the revelation of God in Christ. And then he says this, still in chapter 1, verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, 
conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing, let's just stop. When he says conducting your lives with fear, it doesn't mean that you're, you're, you're afraid. It means there is a deep sobriety and a God consciousness that marks our days. We don't live our lives as drifters, as mere consumers, as only TV watchers, as people who are compelled and urged and pushed only by our passions. We live with a God consciousness under the authority of Scripture. So you live your lives with with deep sobriety, with fear. You you live your, your, your life with your eyes wide open, knowing, see, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the earth. He's the eternal Christ, but was made manifest in these last times for your sake. He's the eternal Christ who was Revealed with power and might as it was promised throughout the ages in your day. Therefore, you live your lives with an incredible sense of Christ consciousness. Because you'll give an answer to God. You're going to count to God for the way you live your life. Life has dignity. Life has purpose, but also brings responsibility. I am a called out person. I will answer to my Lord and Savior, my Abba Father, one day with joy for the way I have lived out my calling. It's not the unfolding of the impersonal plus time plus chance. It's the unfolding of a glorious symphonic reality before God. In Romans chapter 14, Paul is talking about a very sensitive issue in the church. There were certain people there who some of them were, really were strong on a certain dietary plan, i.e. vegetarianism. Others said they could eat meat and vegetables. And there was a vegetarian and a non-vegetarian party. And it was hard to have potluck supper because they couldn't get together on what to eat. And there was another party that said, let's observe these special days. Another party says, no, there are no special days. And, and there was a special days party and a non-special days party. And they were just having these issues going back and forth. And Paul writes them. This is what he says. Uh, chapter 14, verse 6. The one who observes the day observes it in the honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in the honor of the Lord. Says he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains from eating abstains in the honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Four, none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Whether you eat meat or drink wine or whatever you do, 1 Corinthians 10, do it all to the glory of God. We live to God. We live our lives before God. So, 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 so verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother for, for you? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 12, and then each of us will give an account of himself to God. See, stewardship of life means that I am responsible to God. I'm not a drifter. 
I'm a called out child of God. We live in the age of moral apathy and drifting. And we drink it in like we drink in the atmosphere. And you have to fight against it. You have to live with intentionality. You have to say, I am a called out person. This is my sphere of influence where God has placed me, whether it's in homemaking or journalism or whatever. This is where I represent Christ. It is a high calling on my life. You go back to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 5 says this about people who jump into all types of immorality. He says, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And then he says to those who have spiritual oversight in the church, chapter 5, verse 4, he says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory from the Lord. We live before God. So, so we live with the end in view as we make much of Christ. Listen, you always begin with the gospel. Let me plead, plead that with you. You're always gospel-oriented. You always run to the cross. You always glory in the imputed, freely given forgiveness, righteousness of Christ. Don't ever assume the gospel. First Peter starts with the gospel. It's a gospel foundation. It's the only foundation. You always begin with the gospel. So whatever you do in your parenting, in your marriage, in your relationships, in your work, in the way you treat people, you always begin with the gospel, the glorious reality of Christ. Number two, we are worshipers who joyfully celebrate as we travel with hope. Be clear-minded and sober thinking so that you can pray. Be clear-minded, sober things, so you, so you can play, pray aright. Verse 13 and 14, same chapter says this. But, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. In other words, as you live through life, rejoice in any situation because God is God and he watches over you. We, we, if we glorify God, we are worshipers, we are prayers, we, are, we live our lives before him in joyful celebration as we travel with hope. It's incredibly important that we think correctly about God, that we think correctly about his word. I was in a meeting the other day. I was praying with one of the men in our church, small group, and he said this. He said, he says, oh God, you are, and then he just stopped for about five seconds. And I could tell he was struggling with how to, how to praise him. He said, oh God, you are, and he said, my mighty king. Do I, do I joyfully celebrate the reality of Christ? Do I understand that he is, and do I, do I travel with hope and dignity? We read recently about a man who said, who can tell pretty stories, he's an artist, who can tell pretty stories and paint pretty pictures after the Holocaust? 
Here's some of his art. I'm, I'm not an artist. I, I can't draw a straight line. And I admire people who have that gift. But I do know this. My world view is fleshed out in the way I express myself, in my art, in my relationships, in the way I live. Here's a very gifted person who says, I'm firmly convinced life has no purpose Life has no reality. Life is an unfolding of haphazard, hellish events. I I think it's reflected. We should have dignity and grace. We should treat people well. We should speak out for those who cannot protect themselves because life has dignity. Because we travel hopefully as we think correctly. Again, I'm not an artist, but let me tell you something. Michelangelo died the same year John Calvin died, 1564. Michelangelo was 88, Calvin was 54. But they died in 1564. I'm not an artist, but I've seen Michelangelo's David, I've seen the Pieta. Both done by Michelangelo before the age of 30. And you stand there and said, whoever did this believed that man had dignity. That man had purpose. He didn't believe that it was a cacophonic nothingness, that the human body was nothing, that the physical was nothing, that it was just a mistake. He believed there was a purpose and an order to life. And it's reflected And I want that to be true of me. It's not a random cacophony. It's a symphonic overture in a fallen world. There's going to be pain and disease because we live this side of heaven. I know that. But the world is made by God. I think of those paintings versus this psalm. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech, no language where their voice is not heard. I would, I would just say to you, if, if you go right, drive across our bridges and look over the expansive, beautiful harbor and ocean and marshlands, and that doesn't well up inside you, then you're not looking. You're not looking. Wow, what a great time to be in Charleston. 64 degrees, you pick up the paper, and people in Boston have 15 feet of snow on their houses. You know? You go across, you go, wow. And, and that, part of that is that there, there is a purpose and a reason to life. We travel with hope. And that's why in, in the hardness of life, and life is hard, And life is filled with battles and blessings. And the earth is groaning just as we are groaning for the full redemption. Yes, please hear that. But but we say, I don't fully understand this, but all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord, 
who were called, see, called according to his purpose. Now, I don't, I don't understand that, but when I get to glory, I'll see that it's not a tapestry of incongruent, silly lines. It is a tapestry of beauty in my life. We, we, we visit the Apostle Paul in prison as he writes the book of Philippians. And, and he says, you know, you ask most athletes, what's your favorite verse? If they're, you know, they, they say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's a great verse. But listen to the, first, the two verses before that that helps put it in context. Paul says, verse 11, he says, This is very discouraging. Usually, if his lights are bright enough, I can read it. If I, pretty soon, I'll have to ask you guys to hold it. But anyway, Philippians 4. Listen. Not that I'm speaking in, of being in need. He's in prison. For I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And then he lists it out. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And just to be bluntly honest, I think it's more difficult to follow Christ in plenty than in need. But it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's about traveling with great hope because of Christ. Now, we, we travel with hope. There's a man named Martin Amos. He's a British novelist. And he was on a panel and he was asked, they were asking the question about the origins of the universe. And he was asked this question, how did the universe come into being? And his response was kind of a, cavalier response he said we are at least five einsteins away from beginning to answer that question how the universe come into being ask me who's not a good scientist in the beginning god made the heavens and the earth how the universe come into being colossians says all things are made by christ through christ and for Christ. What, what about these little babies that we hold, these people we walk by? The Bible says, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You knitted me together in my mama's womb. It's not just a mistake. How about the people on death row or the people at the Grammy Awards? All men and women are made in the image of God. And they are worthy of respect and Christian love, the Baptist faith and message states, very succinctly. It, we're not five Einsteins away from answering those questions. We open the book and we read the answer. The same man read or I watched an interview on BBC with Martin Amos, his best friend was uh, Christopher Hitchens, who died of esophageal cancer about a year and a half ago. Christopher Hitchens, the, the uh, very bright, very articulate uh, anti-theist, he says. He calls himself an anti-theist. And in the aftermath of the death of Christopher Hitchens, the BBC interviewed Martin Amos. 
And, and, and this is what he said. Which I, I thought was a, a wonderful statement. He says, Christopher Hitchens was my best and dearest friend. And he, he went through horrific death with dignity and bravery. His death led to a dramatic increase, or has led to a dramatic increase in my life for the love of life. It becomes your solemn duty to love life as the departed did when you lose a close friend. I'll say it again. It becomes your duty, okay, your duty to love life as the departed did when you lose a close friend. Well, I, I admire that. And I, I, I say, thank you, Mr. Amos. But then I step back and say, duty? If there's no God who has spoken, how can you talk about duty? I, I'm, I'm glad you're a noble man and you want to embrace life in the death of your best friend. But if life has no purpose or meaning or rhyme or if you're not accountable to anyone, if no one has spoken, then why not become a little Hitler or a little Stalin or a little Pol Pot in your family, in your neighborhood? You see, it's a dead end. If God is not and God has not spoken and we're all on our own, then who's to say what the word duty means? Where do you get the concept of duty? you believe God is and God has spoken and God's ultimate revelation is in the person of Christ then life has dignity and I have responsibility because I will stand before him and I will give an answer for the way I was as a father and a husband and my calling and my friendship I'll give an answer to that life has dignity and deep sobriety um, I'm glad I cut out half my sermon. <laughs> Let me close with this. Michelangelo, back to Michelangelo. Uh, if you read his life, he was a character. He, um, there's a wonderful movie called The Agony and the Ecstasy starring Charlton Heston, who's just the best ever, and Rex Harrison, who's close to the best ever. Charlton Heston is, is Michelangelo. Rex Harrison is Pope Julius II, the warrior pope. In real life, Charleston Heston, Michelangelo, did the Sistine Chapel for four years. It took him four years from age 33 to 37. The warrior pope was really in his last three years of life during the pain of the Sistine Chapel. But in the movie, Michelangelo comes across as really kind of a, a bizarre guy. He would, he would fall asleep on the scaffolding and wake up and start painting again. That's the way he lived. He made more money than everyone here combined will ever make, but he lived as a monk, basically. He slept in his boots, in his clothes, on the floor or on a bench. After he finished working, he'd wake up and start working again. Uh, maybe that's why he never married. He never bathed, he wore boots to bed or whatever. But, but, but I, I, I tried to read about him and try to get my hand on, on his life. Here's what I think was driving Michelangelo. If you do David and the Pieta by the age of 30, it's pretty clear you are gifted. I mean, Michelangelo comes along once every 
century. I mean, it's just incredible. He was a poet. He was an engineer. He wrote plays. He just was the first contributor to ESPN magazine. That's not true. I think Michelangelo lived with the understanding that he was gifted. And to a degree, it hung over his head like the sword of Damocles. I don't want us to go there, but I want us to get close. I have one life. I'm called of God. If I'm a sales clerk... At J.C. Penney, I'm the glorified God in my job. If I'm called to take the gospel to an unreached people group in Guatemala, I'm to honor God with my calling. In my relationships, I live before God. I will answer to him. My Abba Father, as he embraces me, I will give an account, but I will answer so I don't live as the moral drifters around us who are nothing but shopaholics and consumers and TV watchers and the next big event people. I live with sobriety. That's who I am. Okay, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day and for the mercy of Christ. And we pray earnestly that you would visit us with your power, Holy Spirit, and we would live with a sense of calling Especially, we pray, Lord, that we would glorify God in where we work, where we live, how we relate to people. And we'll give you the glory and honor, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen.